Hi, my name is Roman Lacourbas. I am cinematographer on Witches Season 2. Hey, this is Jean-Philippe Lossard, cinematographer on Season 2 of The Witcher. Welcome to The Draw Creative Show. Welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Jean-Philippe Gossard and Roman LeCorbus, cinematographers for The Witcher Season 2. Guys, welcome to the show. Hey. Thank you. you. Hey. There's quite a bit to talk about. Um, Jean-Philippe, we had you on last year or so, year and a half, um, talking about The Witcher Season 1, and Season 2 just takes off where The Witcher 1 ended off. The look is great. I think you've refined the look. You've refined the style. Uh, clearly, it looks like budget went up a little bit, and uh, it's just such an awesome season, and I cannot wait to talk to you guys about it. Before we get there, I just want to mention our sponsor today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at filmmakersacademy.com. And we're also supported today by Ari Rentals. So thank you guys for supporting the show. And I want to encourage you all to follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can not only hear the show, but see the show. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So the Witcher season two. I'd like to start first with Roman basically welcoming you to not only Go Creative Show, but The Witcher. Were you, were you involved in season one at all, or is season two your first time with the show? Season two was my first time. I um, I got um, at some point before a little bit before season one. I got I had a phone call with Lauren um, uh, who interviewed me and uh, to a familiar season one, but I unfortunately I wasn't on the show, so I had to. Uh, so I couldn't join, join the that that season, and and I joined the the adventure on the second season only. It certainly is an adventure, um, Jean Philippe. I'll call you JP. It sounds like that's the that's the proper way to talk to you, which is great. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about the collaboration that you and Roman had on season two? Well, I, I didn't know Roman at all when we started, and uh, you know we we've kind of met and. Um, got on very well together and uh, uh, regularly talked about sequences, looked at each other's rushes, give each other's feedback. And uh, now we, um, it, was, it became a very strong collaboration to the season, definitely. Now, were each of you working together on all the episodes or did you sort of do blocks of four or how, how did it work out? Well, we, we did blocks. Uh, um, e- we did blocks basically. Uh, uh, Roman started. I did block two uh, with director Sarah Roman, and uh, I did some of the block four as well. Uh, some some days on it where Roman couldn't be there for it, but uh, Roman shot uh, the majority of, of the last two episodes uh, as well. Roman, how do you describe the look of The Witcher season two? Like what, when you think about it, when you try to describe it, um, when you're sort of visualizing it, even maybe even before you got to on set, what are you thinking? Um, I was looking for uh, a colorful show, a more colorful show. And, um, and I, I really love the way um, season one was shot in terms of the lensing. You know, I really love the, the anamorphic uh, look that was 
cropped a little bit, if I remember correctly, JP, because yeah, it was the same ratio. Yeah, so, it was. But I, I thought it was very smart. And, uh, but I, I just, um, and, and not only me, JP agreed to it. You know, we were really up for something more colorful. And, um, so, and, and, and because the, the, the choice was to go and to shoot spherical this time, um, the large format came like, uh, the best solution pretty early. So wide and colorful would be the two words, um, that, 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 that could resume our approach for season two. JP, why the choice to go spherical for season two? Well, that was a choice that Roman did, uh, that I inherited, but I was very happy with it. Um, we, we worked on the DNAs from Aries. Uh, they're, they're beautiful lenses. They were slightly detuned. Uh, they had a really good feel to it. Uh, and they felt like they sat really, really well in the continuity of the show from season one. Can you talk to me about that that decision? So, Roman, you come in. The show already exists. There's a season one that JP and you know and, and the team put together um, for the, when they first shot season one. You come in as a second cinematographer. You're taking some episodes for yourself, but you seem to come in with a very specific look that you wanted. You wanted to take it in a new direction. So that has to be kind of an interesting conversation to come into an already existing show and say, here are some new ideas. Can you kind of walk me through that process? Sure. To be honest, it, it was it was not a tough thing just because the world that are sh- shown in season two don't, don't don't exist. Most of the world is Care Moraine, right? And that doesn't exist. It's not shown in season one. So it was, it was easier for, for me and for us to take a different direction, you know, and to explore different options. We didn't have to stick to uh, what was established on season one, even though there are some locations that, that are coming back. But so you see what I mean? It was giving us a lot of, of, yeah. of freedom and, um, and to tell you the truth, it was, I'm not going to be very specific because it, it got a little bit, I mean, there was a little bit of a, um, uh, uh, a little bit of politics behind the fact of, of shooting spherical and amorphic. And I'm a big fan of, of an amorphic, but for multiple reasons, um, Netflix, um, was more into shoot, trying this one in, in anamorphic that goes also with VFX reasons, but not only. And, um, and, and that was the, um, the element that guided me towards the large format ID. And I talked about it with, with JP and we both thought at a very early stage of prep and we both thought it was, you know, the best way to approach the, um, this, this season, you know, being able, you know, it, it, it has a, a huge impact on the lensing. It's, it allows you to compose wide shot in an easier way because you get the subject closer. And so it, it's, it's another grammar. It's another way to shoot, but we, we were convinced that it would give us, um, a, a, a great, a great chance to, uh, films, to, to shoot those huge stages because the sets are, the sets were pretty big. So it, it just made sense. And as far as the color is related, that's, I think that's the thing that it's a matter of taste really. And that's something we were agreeing as well. But, um, um, we thought it made sense for, for this, for the show, you know, starting from episode one, which is kind of fairy tale you know, story. 
um, we we thought it would be a good way to to start and um, and um, yeah, we just embraced it. Right. So you came in and you said, let's change the look um, more colorful. Like you said, you wanted to go away from anamorphic and shoot spherical. But in order to do that, you're saying in order to get that wideness without shooting anamorphic, your thought was, let's go with large format. Exactly that. Is, yeah. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So, so JP, when when you hear this and, you know, Roman's coming in, someone you haven't worked with, um, bringing some new ideas to this, how did you respond to that to that idea? I think that's great. You know, it kind of it kind of stay in the same vernacular than the the show in season one. I think you know, uh, it, the show is worked really well in season two. It's it's a different journey. The characters are more mature. Um, the, the the story is more refined um, and richer to a certain extent. And I, I think you know it doesn't jar or uh, it doesn't feel like you're looking at a different show. You're meeting the same character to a different. Uh, a different travel that takes you over those eight hours, and um, uh, it sits really nicely in there. I think. I think actually, it, it's been a, a positive change to a certain extent. Um, you know, we are. You know, you can look at costumes, and release costume is different from season one to season two. You don't really question it; you just embrace it. It just yeah. there's more maturity in the characters. Uh, Freya was. A young girl in season one. She's a woman in season two. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's more maturity. It's a change, but it's a change that sits really well, I think, to the to the story. Roman, what do you think the spherical look does? Like, w- w- why why were you pushing for that? What what was it about season two and the story and just the basic feel of it? that lended itself more to spherical lenses for you? No. Or a spherical look? No, no, again, it was, it was more of a, it was more of a, something that was kind of advised to go spherical. And, uh, and, um, but I think the question is more about going large format rather than going spherical. You see what I mean? And, and, and I think, and, and again, that 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 idea of the large format really fit into fit with the production design and all the concept drawing that I was looking and, and the floor plans of how big the set were going to be and and uh, and and it made it just made sense to be able to show as much as we could of those sets like to include the characters in their environment include the witchers in within Kermoran and um, and the lensing. That that you work with uh, uh, when you when you're shooting large formats uh, allows you, you know, to to see more of the location, to see more of the context. So um, so again, I, I think I think what primarily drive me towards the large format was looking at all those concepts and talking with the with Andrew Lowe, the production designer, and you like it, it just made sense, you know. Uh, how do we uh, how do we are able to stay close to our characters and and at the same time to 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 show and suggest where they are. Um, it, it just uh, it, it just looked like the, the perfect solution. You had mentioned earlier that you went with the DNA LF lenses. Um, can you talk to me about what led you to that decision? What were the qualities of the lenses that were really working for you? Uh, I was so I was. 
I, I, and, and I say I, I should say we, because JP and I, we were looking for imperfections, accidents. You know, we were not, we were not looking for uh, perfectly clinical, sharp, crisp plants. Uh, and we thought it would be interesting to bring a little bit of funkiness to, um, to, to the image. So we started uh, a little bit, I think it was even before Christmas, two, 2019, a very long time ago, we started testing a bunch of lenses. I think we're talking about six or seven series of lenses. And um, more in the vintage glass, vintage style, you know. But at the same time, we needed to have something that was reliable, uh, meaning <clears throat> at that time, way before COVID, we were supposed to travel through a multitude of different locations, uh, at some point, you know, from the moment block two starts, that means we have two full units running full time, uh, at the same time. So uh, it, it, we, we kind of had to, um, um, had a, a, a newer lens, uh, that we were sure would, would, would support and would, would not fail us. So we tested, I think like Primo, um, uh, the Primo 70, we tested the, the, the DNA, the signature, the, I can't remember. I think to be honest, I think it was six or, or, or seven series. And the one that seemed the most, um, sexy and, and, and funky, uh, were the DNA. Um, mm. so that, that's, that's what guided us towards those lenses. JP, any like particular focal length that you were favoring more than others with that DNA set? I mean, I, I really love the 21. I think it's one of our hero lens to the show, you know, 21, 29 uh, are just really beautiful lenses. We, uh, we mix it up for the wide end with some of the signatures, um, which uh, we had a... Uh, refresh my mind, but I think it was the 12 and, and the a 15, 15 yeah. 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 And the, the, the wide, 15 yeah. was an absolutely yeah. exceptional lens, you know, uh, it absolutely had no bending. That was a stunning lens that so you could, uh, I used it, um, uh, on, on a sequence with, uh, Jennifer as, a uh, as the lens for the old scene, uh, as, uh, as total kind of, going to a mine um, and the, the distortion, yeah, it gets distorted at some point, but it's it's very much acceptable and kind of worked really well in the moment. Um, are you talking I, about I, the really, scenes where, where you like her visions or dreams, uh, Jennifer's visions yeah. and dreams? Type? Oh, yeah, that was something I wanted to talk about because I love the way that you approach that. It's almost like um, the, it, it appears to me that you have the camera really close. They're mm -hmm. centered most of the time in those kind of scenes. In the and there's distortion around the edges of the lenses. Um, it's a really cool look, and it 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 has almost like a. I think that thing is called a snorri cam. Is that what that's called when you wear the you wear like the mount and you have the camera in front of you like this and it kind of stays on the mount like a, like a reverse um, uh, steady cam where it's, you, you're wearing like a harness and the camera's coming right to your face. Does that ring a bell? Well, we, I think we, it's called Snorricam. It is. Yeah. It, it could be the. It, it, it was. It, it was a version of, of the Snorricam. Yeah. Um, um, it was absolutely a, a version of the Snorricam. Like uh, 
Yeah, J- James Fratter, our A-camera operator, uh, was a really talented man. Uh, uh, was was fantastic. I'm really getting in there and really maintaining the shots and reacting to the actors with a, a perfect timing. So you were using this just, you said, what did you say, 21? No. What were you saying? Your 15s for that. 15 on this, yeah. And what about yeah, the aberrations we, on the on the edges of the lenses? Were those brought in in post, or were some of that was some of that natural? Some of it was natural when you shoot wide open on, on the lens, and uh, from memory, I think he has been uh, hands in post. And Roman, you had mentioned earlier that color was a big part of what you wanted to bring in for season two. Um, those lenses, were you adding filtration on top of it? Was there anything done practically that was giving you that color? Or were you relying mostly on, you know, color grade later on? No, so first, uh, first there was uh, um, quite a lot of work designing a lot at the beginning of the show to make sure those color would be enhanced, to make sure we would get enough color separation, color contrast, color separation, and and that that we had a, um, a an overall saturation that you know that 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 we liked. So I would say that was the first uh, research in terms of um, getting the colors. That goes obviously along with all the the huge work that's been done with you know by costumes and and art departments and obviously because that all start with it all start with this right. Um, but, uh, to answer your question, the filtration, not really, uh, I, we used some uh, diffusion filter to, on the signature to help those to matching the DNAs. Um, and you know, from time to time there was, a um, some diffusion were used for some close up or extreme close up, like I'd say pretty usual. Um, but, um, but no, the, the, you know, the DNAs, they have that sort of, um, they, they, they're precise, but they're, but they're, they're soft and they're very gentle with skin tones and, and, uh, and the bokeh, the out of focus, like the depth, um, the out of focus part of the image are very, um, very gentle, very soft, very, it's, it's, it's very, it has an organic feel to it, you know? So, um, so it didn't need to be additionally filtered. It felt, yeah, felt right. Yeah. I want to talk about lighting in The Witcher season two. Um, something that I was noticing when watching this season is, yes, there is more saturation, it seems. It seems like there's more color across the board. Um, I'm noticing that skin tones are a little bit richer. I'm noticing that moonlight is a little bit bluer. It seems as though you're, the, the lights that are being used um, are a little bit richer and more saturated across the board. And and the thing about The Witcher, for anyone that watches it, is it takes place in a time when there's no electricity. So you really, every light has to be motivated by sun, fire, moon. So there's, uh, when you have that kind of limitation on what your lighting sources can be, is that is that challenge kind of like exciting for you guys? Or do you find it to be limiting? I mean, talk to me about the way that you're making these light sources, you know, work in your scenes. Yeah, JP, we'll start with you. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's limiting. It's, uh, it's actually quite nice because to a certain extent, 
this is your palette, this is your tool, this is where you're going with. And and within that word, there's subterranean element where you can transform things further and bring different colors and kind of play with it. You can play with the time of the day, usually where the sun is, the color of it. Um, uh, the the production design help us a lot as well, you know, to candle and torches and all those elements work really well as well. So uh, it's it's quite a rich palette, actually, between blue, greens, sort of amber. Uh, it's, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, it's limitating. I think it's actually, uh, it's actually really a really nice way to work. You know, you, you've got specific tool for different places. So let's let's break down a well we don't have to necessarily break down a scene you know from start to finish but you for example have like a you know an evening interior scene there's a fireplace in the room a few candles in the room Roman how are you approaching a scene like that where you know the only source you really have is fire from the fireplace I mean that's really all you have to work with um talk to me about the way that you would approach that type of scene there, if we're talking about a night scene, right, a night interior, um, there, there's actually two light sources that you can have. The first is, as you said, fire or candle, but you have the moonlight, which is, it's a convention, but that's, that's on a show of this type, on a story of this genre, that is something that you can push and cheat and use as a you know, as, as a, a color, as a lighting source, as even inside, you know, you, we pretty often we were doing the, the hot, those, those hard shaft of moonlight going through window and, and you can use the bounce of this that shifts the color a little bit as it bounces on the floor, on the walls or on the furniture. So, um, the, it's all about where, until where you need to be realistic basically it, it, you know for and and i think this show allows you to get away a little bit from the uh from the realism traditional realism and and you can push things a little bit more just because just because it's heroic fantasy you know and so you have it, it allows you to go a little more crazy that you would on a contemporary uh narrative and um to answer your question, I would on a, on a on a scene that didn't need any uh, special artifact, or uh, there is not that many scenes like that. But but um, I would use the 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 candle or the fire as either the main key light, and and then use the moon as you know some some kind of spots on the on the on the backgrounds, or maybe like a sidekick. Uh, on the faces and um, and as there is a lot of scenes that also are pretty dark, uh, you could and and we did that on a few scenes. You could do that the other way and use the moonlight as the principal fill light, if I may say, or key light, and and having a little bit of the fire and flicker uh, filling the rest of the image. So I think if you if you have you know if you think about fire and fire color. Um, and moonlight, and and talking about fire color, you have also the flicker. You know, the the way you uh, the way you use that flicker. Are you using it or are you not using it? If you're using it, is it flickering in the eyes or only in the side or the other way around? That gives you that starts giving you a lot of possibilities and a lot of options. So um, 
yes, sometimes you do miss headlights or car lights or you know, so and and or an ion tube somewhere on a on a, on a shop, so, but you. There is still a lot of options with the the natural elements, just because we have the option of enhancing it quite a lot, due to the nature of the show and and the and the episodes. Yeah, JP, I saw you nodding your head when Rome was talking about kind of pushing it a bit because you are you don't have to be as realistic in The Witcher season no. two as something more contemporary. It, it, it sounds like you you're you're along you know along the same roads with that. Can you? Can you talk to me about maybe a situation where you pushed it a little bit? You pushed the fire a little more, you pushed the moonlight a little bit more, and you played with that. I've played a little bit in the in the lab, I guess, uh, where we transitioned from the gray hole of Cameron, uh, where we had a blue moonlight, and then we, we transitioned to some corridors, and then we go into the lab, and I've kind of played with a really dirty, greeny color that sort of give it that sort of more subterranean feel with it, which uh, which worked, I thought, really well. I've played with that as well in The Sears. Uh, I think it's in episode four from the top of my head. Uh, same thing, I've kind of played with a sort of really dirty, um, dirty green color, and I was contrasted uh, really nicely with... Um, with the flambeaux that were carrying the actors at the time, I think again it just sort of enhanced the the set design. That was all that sort of mossy and wet and dirty uh, underground sewers. Uh, so it's it's kind of lovely because you can kind of push a little bit the colours and uh, you you don't have to, as Roman was saying, you know, you, you don't have to be realistic. You just have to find something that's satisfying visually. That that. that that, that kind of support the story and kind of create the sense of danger and uh, the, the fact that it feels a bit unsettled and dirty and you don't want to be in there, you know, you kind of feel that those people are in a hostile environment, you know. Talk to me a little bit more about the use of Moonlight in the series, because I had mentioned, you know, when we first started talking about the overall lighting for the, for the show, that that Moonlight was quite blue. And it is feeling like there was a lot of saturation in that moonlight, and you really are pulling the blues out of it. What what kind of just everybody's a little bit different with their approach to moonlight. Some people are more on the silver side, some people are more on the blue side. It kind of runs the gamut. Um, how Roman do you use moonlight in The Witcher season two? What was kind of your philosophy for it? Because it, it was a primary light source. Yeah. The my my, I, I started thinking that at the beginning, just because again, episode one is a little bit apart from the show, just because the jo- the journey really starts Geralt and series journey, and and really starts from episode two, and the discovery of all the Witcher starts from episode two. So, episode one is really um, a a moment between father and daughter, and and, and father meeting an old friend. Um, and again, as I said, because it has that, that very fairy tale tone and atmosphere, I thought the moonlight there needed to be bluer. It needed to be close, closer to some of the Disney movie that are extremely, uh, uh, like Beauty and the Beast that are very saturated and, and very yeah. color separated. And, and I thought the approach needed to remind the moonlight, the color of the moonlight needed to remind this, 
this this style uh, for the first episode. And then as we go through Cameron, um, we thought with JP that the silver cyanide moonlight uh, needed to kind of take over. And and so uh, my, my, my first idea during prep was to try to differentiate, differentiate the different worlds by the color of the moonlight. Not something super obvious, you know, but just a very, a very slight touch of, of difference. Like when um, Yennefer uh, is uh, before they, they, they get attacked at the end of uh, um, episode, episode one, um, the, the idea was to have a very heavy green and cyan green moonlight. And then you cut back to, uh, uh, Gerard and Siri who are more in a bluer environment. And, and then you soon discover that, um, Cameron is more on a silvery cyanish look. So the, and to, to tell you the truth that didn't, because it's, it was such a long show that sometimes you like, and I'm sure that happened many times with JP as well. Sometimes you're like, okay, ideally this location is for example, more cyanist, but then sometimes it doesn't fit the scene. So you just tweak it a little bit, but, but the main direction is there and, and minor, minor tweaks are, are usually not noticed, you know, but I, 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 I was just hoping that the, in the subconscious of, of uh, the audience, it will, it would give just a little bit, another key of, of where you are and, 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 and another tip about, um, the, the, uh, the nature of the location, even though you don't need to describe it because we know where we are by, by the storytelling. But I, I thought giving, um, an identity, you know, to places we go through using the moonlight was interesting. And, and it usually influenced the color of the fire because it has to, you know, when you start playing a lot like we did with color and, 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 uh, and hence the gap between the, the cool light and, and the warm light, uh, it, it's a very thin line between that. You don't want to, you don't want to cross it and go too far because it can become a little bit too much and cheesy and vulgar. And at the same time, as we were saying, we wanted to, you know, to push it a little bit. So it's always very, challenging but in in a nice way and interesting to play with you know those those extreme uh sort of light and trying to to make it uh, interesting and 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 look good one of the courses on filmmakers academy that personally i think you guys would really benefit from is called how to be a camera assistant and it's taught by derek edwards who's an accomplished camera assistant and has all sorts of information that you guys really need to know so derek welcome to go creative show i wanted to ask you um to me it seems like the relationship between a camera assistant and your dp is crucial can you talk to me about that so when i work with these dps it's not just me working as a tool for them, it's me listening and understanding what they wanna do. So when you have this relationship with your DP and you feel the passion that he's pushing onto you, it doesn't turn into work. It, it turns into you wanting to accomplish this goal with him. And that's what I love about these passionate DPs out there. I'm not getting yelled at, I'm getting pushed 
to excellence. I love that. Now, if you guys want to be pushed to excellence, you know where to go. Filmmakersacademy.com, where you can see Derek's course and a whole bunch of uh, other courses as well. Filmmakersacademy.com. So, JP, I want to talk to you. I want to transition to um, lighting exteriors now. We talk quite a bit about interiors. Um, a lot of the show is set outside. And I actually want to start with something that I was, when I was watching, I was thinking must be a particular challenge is shooting outside in snow covered scenes. There's quite a bit of that in the show. And it, presents a unique challenge of basically having a giant bounce card mm-hmm. <laughs> on, underneath all of your talent and everything. So can you talk to me about the way that you approached shooting exterior, in particular snowy scenes, and then we can kind of go on from there? Yeah, I think, you know, like the, 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 the starting point with shooting exteriors is controlling the sun pretty much. You know, you need to control your source. And uh, uh, it depends the environment that we were in. If we were shooting on the back lot where you can have big uh, fly sports and uh, 40 by 40 or 50 by 50 frames on huge crane to, uh, to block the sun and kind of tracking the sun through the day uh, or on the opposite, you know, using uh, large sources uh, to bring the sun because sometimes you shoot sequences outside over multiple days. So you need to kind of try to create some continuity as much as possible. So that, that's first a quite a big challenge, especially when you're in the north of Europe, where the weather changes drastically from one day to the other, not to say by the yeah. hour sometimes. Uh, so, um, that, that's one challenge. As far as snow cover itself, uh, I don't find it usually challenging because um, it's sort of part of the environment. And when you get into closer coverage, you can just make a negative feel and kind of control the level of bonds and kind of model the lighting on your cast as as you wish. Um, But no, I think the, the main challenge was obviously like for anyone is controlling your primary source, which is the sun in those moments, really. So just thoughts in general about shooting outside. And do you share the same concerns, Roman, when you're out there? Is it mostly about continuity for you? Um, because, you know, weather changes quite a bit where you are. Yeah, yeah. Maintaining the continuity and also, uh, so which is keeping the control in a way. I mean, it's harder. I, I, find, I find exteriors... Uh, extremely hard just because you don't have the control and everything. And, uh, there, there is, as you said, there is the, the change of the, of the weather, uh, which is kind of your biggest enemy and, and, um, trying to read in the sky with your gaffer is, is always a challenge, challenging game that no one likes to play really. But, um, but, but I think it's even harder to try to find a, a, uh, an interesting visual approach that, makes sense that that makes sense for the story that serves the story and that looks good because again there is so many elements that are hard hard to control so i'd say uh, yeah I, I totally agree and 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 this usually not always but is it usually start with controlling the sun obviously in an ideal world if you shoot on a on a back lot and you have the budget that goes with it um you start by cutting the sun and recreating your own sun. 
I'm not saying that it, it, it's, that's an ideal, obviously it, you cannot do that all always and on, and on all the scenes and, and sometimes using the real sun is, get, is great, but, um, it depends on the length of the scene. Um, so I would say, yeah, my first reflex, my first approach would be how do we, how do we control the sun today and how do we make, you know, uh, our own sun if we need some sun. Now, do you have any thoughts on the snowy exteriors? Is, does that provide any challenges to you, any benefits of having just a big kind of white surface uh, under your talent? I, it's, it's actually great. You know, it's like when, when, you, when you go on high mountains and, and shoot a movie, you, you usually don't bring a light with you. You just uh, bring a black and negative feel and, you know, and, and big black drapes. And, and so there, there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of this. It's actually, uh, it's actually a big help and you start working more with, with negative feel. Um, and, uh, that's for the, 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 the snow cover thing. Now, seeing falling snow is, is just, just amazing. It gives so much atmosphere, so much, um, uh, realism to to a scene and and um, and we had we had an amazing SFX team that were really able even outside not only on stage but on location outside in forest or on the back lot they were able to maintain and 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 we were uh, 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 we were able to define precisely the you know the amount of snow and how much we wanted to see through or not and and get that that gives so much perspective to the image that gives so much richness to it you know it's uh, so um shooting under under the snow was um was great i i, I had a great time doing it. it it it's painful for a lot of people but it, it's it's so rewarding really why is it painful well you know there is a lot of parameters that needs to work at the same time. Um, there's, you know, there's not only us and our camera and our light and our covers and all, but you have the SFX that are really um, a, a, such an important factor. And if the wind starts to pick up, they, you know, they they need to change their plan um, again. And I have to say thank you to Ronnie Iraqi, who's an amazing, he's a magician to me and he has always a, another solution when, when the, the weather was changing to, to give us what we wanted. But, uh, it, it seems, it seems easy like this with words, but there is so many, so many things involved as soon as you start playing with rain and, and wind and snow that, uh, that, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult and, and the cold and, you know, the costume and, you have sometimes we use the, the foam and, and if it sticks on the hair, then you have a problem. You would have, you know, there is, yeah, it's, it's just a very complicated um, setup usually. But fun. JP, you were, t it sounds fun. It, it sounds, it, it sounds like it's challenging, obviously, but you know, it's just another challenge. Like that's kind of what you guys and what we all do in, in film work is just fix problems, <laughs> get through challenges. Sure, yeah. That's kind of what mm -hmm. it is. Um, JP, you talked about continuity being a big issue for you or a big concern when you guys are doing exterior shooting, not just the weather, just kind of in general. Um, what are some of the ways that you made sure that you kept continuity across multiple days, across multiple uh, weather situations on The Witcher season two? Like what's, what is your technique? Oh, um, I guess that's... Depends where you start, you know, like, uh, you, yeah. you, you basically, 
as Roman mentioned it, uh, you know, you can start in the sunny day and kind of embrace the sun for a reason. And then the following day, it could be very overcast. And then you bring your your own sun and you, you just have to basically, um, you just have to find a way, I guess. I mean, every situation are a bit different. Uh, in some location, it was quite challenging when we went to shoot in the in the Lake District in in the north of England, uh, where again you're in mountains, so suddenly the clouds come and you're in a patch of fog, and sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes you have to just assume that it's going to take a little bit longer. Uh, we've been relatively lucky all the way through. Uh, I've think uh i think it worked out pretty well on that front uh but you know you just have to you just always have to have a b plan in your pocket ready to pull it out when when it changed really you you need to have an alternative i want to talk about battle scenes in the witcher season two there's quite a few of them they're they're really significant and interesting and i like the way that you guys approach them um who wants to start? There's so many battles here to dive into. Is there one for either of you that was a particular challenge or you think had an interesting story to it um, in the way that you handled it? Who, who, uh, you you who had the battle, I think, Roma. I, I didn't have any battle this year. Uh, I, no, I didn't have any battle, actually. On you had, you had uh, uh, right, oh, the fight. Yeah. You no, didn't have had, any battles, JP? No, you you had a few fights, didn't you? I had fights, but uh, yeah, uh, the Queen Leshy fights, which was like uh, it was much more a more classical fight to a certain extent, uh, more cat and mouse sort of chase uh, with uh, with Siri uh, um, and Henry, and but I, I don't had a, a large battle as you as you probably had as much. Well, then, we, Roma, we, we'll start with you. Is there sort of a, a large battle scene that you shot that you can speak to? And talk to us about the way that you kind of handled it, some of the challenges that you overcame. The uh, I would say the two biggest ones, so there is the Leshy fight, if we can consider that as a battle scene. I think we can, right? Uh, the yeah, Leshy of course fight we can. In the, in, See, and that's in an the, episode two. Yeah, in the lab, which was, um, which was really some, uh, it was extremely fun because at some point you have, um, a witcher that it, that became the, uh, basically became a, a giant tree with huge vines coming out of it, and and that you know that that, that can hit people with it and and kill people with it, and and um, and Eskel, uh, the witcher that has been uh, became a, cursed and so that became a tree, is fighting Vesemir and Geralt, and it was it was. Um, it was very interesting to design that scene and work on on the shot with Steven Sergic, the director, um, uh, uh, during prep, and then and then to figure out how we were going to shoot it because uh, in this type of scenario you have that huge creature that cannot be represented only by a human. So you obviously have you know a, a guy uh, suited in blue suit, and uh, but he needed to be like three meters high. So you have to, you know, find ways depending on the shot to make him look like higher and uh, to simulate the vines with some sort of uh, 
big, uh, you know, all the, the, those foam cylinder that you use in swimming pool, ridiculous stuff at, like that. Is that, that you what know? you were using? Yeah, that, that's what the, we had to use. The pool noodles? Exactly, the pool noodles. <laughs> Just because when when the vine are gonna goes in, travel the room and goes in direction of Geralt and 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 he hits it with his word. If he was just hitting the air like this, he would simply don't buy it because, you know, you yeah. need to buy that there is interaction and a shock. And anyway, so uh, so it was about finding ideas like this that, that would help the action be to be uh, seem real and true, help the actors and also help the camera because you actually see what the CG vine is later going to be. So the camera can frame it, anticipate and frame accordingly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's about the, you know, tricks and, 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 um, and ideas, the, the old fashioned way saying the old fashioned, I mean, the old way we, we, we were doing cinema. And that, that's the great thing that even on big shows like this, even on the 21st century, you need to find ideas and, and sometimes jump on a, on a, on a ladder and, and uh, and put the camera on top of a ladder instead of a crane because the set is designed this way or you have to find a way to make that guy bigger. You see what I mean? It's about cheating, yeah. hmm. but with a very old recipe sometimes that, that do work. So that, that was, that was a, that was a very fun scene to do. Well, for the people that haven't seen that episode, the, you had mentioned that it's this big, large tree, but it's more than, it's not like a leafy tree. Like it's, it's all these vines and branches and they're everywhere and they kind of extend and sometimes they fill the entire frame and the entire space. And something that I was thinking about during that fight scene is I'm like, just the shadows alone, like how can you create realistic shadows for these CG vines that are just kind of everywhere all the time? Like, I think you guys did a really, really good job of making that as realistic as a, you know, wild you know, monster vine tree can be. <laughs> it yeah. really, it really fit in the scene well. And um, what my question to you was is, first of all, was that something that was concerning to you? Is the shadow lines, and also how are like on set in order to frame for something that's constantly changing shape and getting bigger and smaller in the frame. Did did you have some sort of monitoring on set where you could see like a wireframe or or something maybe even more realistic of what it was that you were shooting? Yeah, we had some sort of a previs. Um, I, I say some sort because to be honest, it all started with you know concept drawing to uh, realize how this creature was gonna look, and uh, and then the the SFX started and the prosthetics starting working on a extremely realistic. Uh, uh, makeup. It was really um, amazing what they did. And then from there you start, you know, storyboarding, but we couldn't previse the whole scene. There was also, um, in addition to it, there was a, a stunt previs. But then the some key moments were actually done uh, by the VFX with a proper previs, but uh, it we didn't have the, the, the integrity of the scene. So um, I would say, if I remember correctly, I'd say, um, I'd say maybe 60% of it was previous, maybe a little bit more than, than this. So, hmm. so when you get familiar, you familiarize yourself with that previous you, and you usually try to start with this, uh, those previous shot, then 
you know, you you getting used in a way of how how the creature move and what it would do and everything. And then it's about a very tight and a very collaborative discussion between stunts, VFX, and obviously Steven, director, to to um, to um, make each moment to work. Um, the that that's basically the process, you know, that triangle between stunt, VFX, and and uh, director, camera. Um, as far as the shadows, to answer your question, the shadows were obviously a, 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 a big concern for me, but um, on this one, again, pool noodles, uh, it was extremely, extremely helpful because <laughs> some of the shadows, when, you know, you can, you can do a lot of things. You can simulate. It's just a matter of timing and speed and how you're going to use it that... Um, it solves a lot of issue as far as our casted shadows are, um, are, uh, are the subjects, you know? I love that. Do you have any pictures of that, you know, the, the Amazing. CG blue guy with the pool noodles? That'd be so great I'm to see. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure I, I can find one. I'll find one. Please, please send to us. Yeah. Cause I would love to share those with the audience uh, just as a visual as we're talking. Sure. Um, and, and just to round out that, that, little conversation about that scene were you, I know you did the previs, but were you seeing anything on set? Like, did you actually have any like virtual, you know, um, I, I don't even know what the terminology is, but like, you know, how you can fire up like unreal engine or something and actually see the scenes on the green screen as you're working. It's not the, no. it's not the final look, but it's something just for framing. So no, you were just no, purely shooting we into. Had, yeah, we had an iPad with the previs, a few iPad with the previs, and we knew the shot were going to go from there to there. But uh, no, we had we had no real engine or nothing that was being able to be uh, um, like a match and overlay with yeah. our camera. And no, not not on not on that fine. We used something closer to it on episode A, but not for this one now. Now, I know, JP, you said you didn't have any large-scale battle scenes, but do you have an example of something with, um, you know, a, a certain level of intricate, you know, complications, I mean, <clears throat> maybe some visual effects that were challenging to work through, just something you can point to on I mean, one of your episodes? We, 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 had, a, we had sort of the follow-up uh, in episode two with the Twin Leshy and the Myriapods fights uh, where we use as well some pool noodles for some of it and um, very simple rock system to uh, interact with the actors. Um, that was a challenge in terms of location because we cheated in many, many different locations. So it was hard to create a journey that feels realistic to the space. Uh, and that, that, that was pretty challenging as well. Um, no much uh, previews on that as such. So it was very much one of uh, uh, working from uh, reference of height of the creature and kind of make it work on the day, kind of finding our fear on the day with it. You know, working with, obviously, as a stunt viz that, that was giving us the, the key moments. Uh, but no, otherwise it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty much like discovering it and exploring it more on the day. Now, you both mentioned height being one of the first 
concerns that you're dealing with because you know you have to have accurate height for framing. So in those situations where you just have, you know, somebody dressed in a blue suit, are they on stilts? Are you just accounting for extra headroom or like what what is happening to um, make an accurate uh, height in scenes like that? A, a tennis ball on the top of a really ice tan <laughs> worked really well. I mean it's again <laughs> very simple, but it's efficient. It works. Uh, you know, it's like uh, you just get your eye lines and you do those silly shots of a plate with a tennis ball in the middle and uh, do a clean plate afterwards. Uh, all that sort of things. And um, and uh, use your imagination as, as far as quickly a creature move and that sort of thing. Now, when you're now, I'm sure these scenes are you're you're. Uh, humbly sort of playing it down a little bit, <laughs> but I think that there has to be a lot of, I mean, there's just so much prep work that has to go into these scenes. Even the simplest of scenes, when you add visual effects, you have to have a ton of prep work in it. So what kind of collaboration are you doing? And JP, we'll start with you with the visual effects team. Well, I think the where we start first is storyboarding. Well, we've done a lot of storyboarding uh, because we need to do it to give a chance to the visual effects department to budget the sequence, to see how many shots we've got with the creatures, what the creatures want to do, or complex other shots. So uh, that, that's the first parameter. Uh, then secondly, you know, you kind of work with what is this creature can do uh, and how does he move and how does he interact with the space and <clears throat> that's really like the, the, the second layer um, and then you draw and take your camera and everyone else and you try to shoot it and uh, that, that's sort of the, the, the way you, you you do it but you start with a plan uh, that you don't want to follow up. I mean, I, I think we, we were pretty, we probably achieved um, 75% of the, the storyboard that we planned and then we've kind of remodeled when the space wasn't working or we couldn't quite get the camera where we wanted it or the shot that we created was impossible or, you know, that, that sort of thing. You you just need to think on your feet then. Um, uh, but no, it, the, the, the challenge of that space is uh, when Siri arrives into that, that sort of huge rock arena where there is a waterfall. Uh, that, mm. that that was that was quite a tricky space to 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 shoot because you had the bottom of that huge rock formation, and what you keep going in your head is like, I need to shoot it. I need to understand how small I feel into that space how fragile the, the character is into the space. So um, that, that that was something that was that we've captured, I think, but it took a bit of work, really. Uh, you know, you really have to use your wide lenses to always feel the space, feel the the, the height of the, the rock wall around the, to always kind of dwarf in your actor to a certain extent. Um, so we we show it really wide and and close into the into into the space yeah to create that sense of you know to to create that scale so that yeah, the characters seem yeah, smaller yeah. in the space yeah absolutely and to capture and, um, the vastness of the space which is absolutely massive 
Yeah, and and that is something that I noticed on season two, even a little bit more than season one, is that the, even though you are shooting spherical, you're, you're shooting large format, and you do get those big, wide vistas, but I think what season two does um, really well, and certainly did it in season one too, but I feel like maybe just because it's fresher in my mind, but I'm noticing that uh, there's a lot of the dialogue scenes, just the simple, just the drama, just the moments where there's just drama happening. <laughs> There's often times in Witcher season two when you're almost like, um, you almost kind of forget you're watching a fantasy. You, It starts to become just like a drama on occasion in each episode. And I feel like a lot of attention is paid to, uh, or just as much of attention is paid to the simple scenes, the back and forth dialogue between two people, as you do with the visual effects scenes, at least as a viewer, that's the kind of impression that I'm getting. And I'm curious, Roman, what your thoughts are for something like that. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're feeling like this because that, that was kind of at the point. I mean, we tried, and I think that's the case for all episodes, to be honest. We, we tried to um, make sure all the details and even the smaller scene had um, – not, not, not to be necessarily epic, but that the, the every single detail to to be able to buy and like every single detail in the far, far background, and 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 that's that go that comes thanks to VFX, um, uh, obviously, but long meetings and long discussion with the VFX to be able to, because as JP said. At some point, there is a budget, and um, there is no way you, you're gonna have the ability to get, you know, high end VFX on all the shots of an episode. That's never going to happen. Um, so at some point, you know, uh, as the discussion goes on and the meeting goes on and the prep goes on, you need to prioritize, uh, certain shot, uh, obviously the white shot, but it, it sometimes has an impact on the way you're shooting a film. So, the the with I know that with with Steven Sergic and and with Ed was the same at some point when you know you're not gonna get all the the um, the VFX that you you'd like to or or regarding the amount of shots you want to shoot then you just adapt rather than shooting something that's gonna be possibly average you try to shoot it and to tell the story slightly differently so you know the quality is going to be there on pretty much all the shots so i think it's about choosing the priority and it's about being able to um when you have all the cards in hand and when you have all the answers and you know uh talking only about very difficult scene in terms of vfx and and far background and and uh and set extension and stuff like that i think it's about making a choice at some point uh but the the uh, the goal of of um i'm sure every director uh was to um uh, not making sure the audience wouldn't feel any compromise so so it was about again make, making the choice was the best way to shoot that scene, what's, what's going to be the most epic way to shoot that scene, considering the obligations we have, whether it's location, weather, money, fair fix, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Is there anything in lighting or in camera lenses or any sort of technologies that are emerging now or future technologies, something that you're excited about, maybe uh, something new that you're excited to use on your next project? Is there anything kind of going on right now in lighting or camera or lenses that is sparking your interest? And JP, we'll start with you or, or Roman, whoever has something fresh in your mind. Well, I, 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 nothing new, but I'd say one of the first things that really intrigues me uh, because I've never used it before. I've seen a multitude of tests, but I've never used it. Are obviously the virtual set. I mean, the LED walls. Yeah, uh, that's not new though. But that's something that that um, that would certainly have been in very interesting for some of our scenes. And I'm sure that it's going to be uh, as as time goes by, it's going to be better and better. So yeah. And then in terms of in terms of lenses, that's not new either, but um, I'm quite interested by the new series of anamorphic, 1.5 anamorphic. Uh, there's more and more coming, um, I mean, existing right now, and, and, and there's more coming, in it, I'm sure. And um, yeah, that, that's that's uh, being able to use anamorphic on large format in a, in a fairly easy way uh, feels quite uh, appealing to me. Yeah, and and then on the lighting side, there's. I mean, um, I don't really believe the LED, at least not anytime soon, are going to replace any big source of light, big HMIs and big tanks. And I don't really think so. And if it does, it's going to take a while. But um, but uh, I'm all the time curious about you know those bigger sources that are that are coming on, not only from Ari for many manufacturers who start... Like, not the panels, but like a LED... Yeah, Fresno. Fresno. Bigger, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the bigger LED Fresno is something really interesting. About, I haven't seen it yet. I mean, we, we, had, uh, we had some small ones which were incredibly useful, worked really, really well. Uh, Do you remember what they were? They, Which ones? Uh, they were the, um, what is the? Q5. Q5. Q5 and Q7 that we had, uh, which were, which were grilled. Uh, but I mean, I will follow up on the, on Romain. I think the, the volume is a really interesting technology. We've seen it used beautifully well. Um, I think it's got further to go, uh, you know, uh, and that is, that is exciting about what we can, do with it and where we can take it. Uh, that's that's definitely something to to look forward to. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, when I first started, we were using like Rifa kits and all like the the film school. Yeah. It's just yeah. it's so crazy that it, now it's standard. It would be unusual to have a light and not have a computer attached to yeah. it, yeah. all yeah. sorts of controls and knobs, and it's like like that is the norm to have. All this control over your light is just, it's so crazy. And I, it, it's, you almost feel, you almost feel bad for like kids that are just going through film school now that haven't had the experience of just a simple light that you just turn on and it's on without having to control it. It's, it's there was true, such a freedom yeah. to that type of lighting to me. And as much as I love the control of, you know, what you can do, uh, it's still, I mean, to have to to have to learn basically a new computer system, a new operating system every time you have a light is is crazy. But 
I mean, that's the yeah. way that it's going. And the control mm. is the control is just it's excellent. I'm looking at that Q5 right now. I haven't used one, but I've people are talking quite a bit about them and um they're great. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um yeah, but just the, the amount of like, control you have is crazy. Yeah. And and I mean it's it's it must be hard for the gaffers to keep up because there is a lot of new stuff coming out, you know, um quite often. And, uh, and as you said, everything needs to be attached to a computer or an iPad or, you know, and, uh, and there, there's so much that, um, yeah, it is, there's, there's a lot of things, new things, new toys to try, right? There certainly is. This is the time of year for it. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both. I really appreciate it. The show is excellent. Uh, I'm sure people listening to this episode have have already seen or will soon be seeing the series. And of course, you go see season one. Season two is out now. They're both available on Netflix, the whole thing. And it just looks great. And both of you guys did such an excellent job. So thank you for coming on and talking about it. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, I want to thank Jean-Philippe Gossard and Roman LeCorbus, cinematographers for The Witcher Season 2. Thank you guys so much for being on. I also want to thank our sponsors today, Filmmakers Academy. Master your craft at gocreativeshow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy. When you go there, don't forget, you get 10% off with coupon code GOCREATIVE10. So check it out for yourself. We love those guys. GoCreativeShow.com forward slash Filmmakers Academy. And of course, we want to thank Ari Rental for uh, sponsoring this episode. Thank you as well. Our producer, Connor Crosby, you can find him at IgnitionVisuals.com and Dave Siegel from SiegelSound.com who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. Thank you both for your help. Uh, I want to thank Facebook. I want to thank Facebook. What am I saying? I want to thank you and I want to encourage you by going to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube where you can find us and follow us. Of course, on YouTube, you get to see the episode, not just hear it. So that's a lot of fun. You get to see our guests and all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. I post a bunch of stuff behind the scenes clips of what I'm doing with my production company. And also, uh, I share some really interesting behind the scenes from TV shows and movies that seem to be doing well. You guys seem to like all that stuff. So I will continue doing it. I want to thank you for joining us today and we will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.